Hey peeps, it's me, Christine, and I want to share with you a game-changing product that has improved my sleep and daily health. So let's dive in. You all know through my journey, I have struggled with sleep, being afraid of it, not getting quality sleep, and not being able to regulate my temperature throughout the night. I definitely learned the hard way, but sleep matters big time. It's when your muscles repair, your brain detoxes, and your body can work on cellular renewal. We just can't afford to miss out on an adequate amount of high-quality sleep, which is kind of hard when you have a rare disease. There's not much that I control in this real life, but one of the easiest and most effective ways to get better sleep every single night is through temperature regulation. Studies actually prove cooler temperatures lead to a deeper, more restful sleep, and that insomniacs actually lack this natural drop in core body temperature, which is what keeps them up at night. Personally, I run hot. This means that even if my room is super cold, I wake up in a pool of sweat, uncomfortable, changing my clothes several times throughout the night. It's frustrating for obvious reasons, and this is why I was so relieved to discover this transformative products from Chili. The Cube from Chili Sleep is a system that fits right over the top of your mattress and uses water to control the temperature of your bed, which helps lower your internal temperature and triggers deeper, relaxing sleep. Since water has 30 times more thermal conductivity than air, these systems are a lot more effective than just cranking up the AC. I mean, I keep my house at 65, so it has to be true. Ever since I started using the Cube system, I've noticed I fall asleep a lot faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. (laughs) Now, my wife is not a polar bear like me and likes to sleep a little bit warmer, so I love that we can each have our own temperatures on either side of the bed. Chili products can range between 55 and 115 degrees. Right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilisleep.com backslash findyourrare20, you get 20% off the Cube All Sleep Systems with Find Your Rare 20. Sleep is something we could all use more of, and we can all take small steps towards getting better sleep to improve our life in big ways. I hope you'll check out the Chili Sleep System and see why I love their product so much. Hey peeps, I'm your host, Christine, and I'm flying solo today. Today, I'm sitting down with David Hunter, the founder of Rare Disease Data Trust. Our GDT is a new and innovative peach patient-centric diagnostic model that accelerates the discovery and diagnosis of rare disease patients through direct collaboration with large provider groups and health systems. This complements commercial sponsorships of targeted searches. Their mission is to end the rare disease diagnostic odyssey and accelerate the discovery and diagnosis of lost rare disease patients. I don't know about any of you, but I'm eager to dive in. This is the Because We're Strong podcast, where we sit down every week to get your stories and insight on how to navigate this rare life. You can expect everything real and raw in the hopes that your story, along with ours, helps another person who is dealing with a similar rare struggle. So grab your favorite drink, a comfy blanket, and buckle in, because rare disease isn't for the faint of heart. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Excited to be here. Love love the program. <laughs> so before I get into the questions, I got to be honest, everyone, how I met David. <laughs> In news that will shock nobody, I was flying up to upstate New York. And, you know, right before they say, you know, turn your cell phones off, 
I found, you know, a job ping and I was like, oh, okay. And it said rare disease. So I was like, I don't know what this job is. I am pretty sure I am 0% qualified for this job, but you know what? (laughs) Why not? Rare disease. Maybe I take a shot in the dark. And honestly, I was lucky enough that uh, David got right back to me. I don't know what he saw in my resume, but I am sure glad he did. We got to have a conversation. And although I am not sure I am going to be the top candidate for that job, you know, I am getting to work with him in this capacity and I'm so excited. So thank you, David, for, you know, take, taking a chance on a rare girl. I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, Absolutely. So David, not many people even know rare diseases unless it affects them, nonetheless build companies around them. So before we get into all of that good stuff and you explaining, because I'm you, you've got my attention, why rare disease? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, I sort of accidentally stumbled into rare disease. My career uh, just sort of left, led me there. I spent really 30 years in the pharmaceutical space and then about 20 years ago, Landed a job with a small startup biotech, uh, launching a rare disease therapy. And it was then I began to really become educated about this rare disease marketplace, the 1983 Orphan Disease Act. Uh, and this market is really what is a 30 year old marketplace today that, uh, will generate almost $94 billion in revenue. Um, and is growing exponentially and is forecast to grow very significantly. But, you know, as I began to, you know, I got into healthcare in general because I wanted to help people. And then as I got into rare disease, I realized that there were these repetitive fundamental problems uh, in the marketplace uh, by virtue of, of the design of the marketplace and rare disease. And they just were two things that don't, uh, don't seem to work well together. And I kept running into these same problems again and again. And then you meet patients when you have the privilege of meeting patients uh, that have rare diseases, you hear their stories and their remarkable uh, stories of perseverance and tenacity and uh, persistence and, you know, just the human um, determination to overcome circumstances are extraordinary. And you become caught up in uh, a desire to help those very special uh, patient populations um, you know, get the care they deserve. And, you know, after uh, 20 years and launching uh, seven ultra rare disease therapies commercially and seeing these problems repeat themselves, um, you know, I just kept racking my brain thinking there has to be a better way to systematically discover and diagnose these patients. And this, the doggone diagnostic odyssey hinders the entire marketplace, uh, both from research and discovery and clinical trial enrollment, uh, and even even care uh, of patients. And again and again, I kept, you know, I'd be out there educating providers. Um, you, you know, you'd have to educate sometimes 100 providers to find two who it was meaningful to. And oftentimes the patients were just right under their nose and they just didn't have the lens to see the disease uh, that they weren't looking for. Um, and so that, you know, it just drew me in and really... Uh, discovered, I think, a solution to solve this problem, uh, primarily for the benefit of the patients and in assistance to the providers and essentially accelerate this marketplace um, that I think is 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 at half pace uh, because of these lost patients. 
Okay, so before we get into that, um, I just want to say, like, thank you, because I don't know, I have not met many people. So in 2016, I got sick, everyone knows that. And I always say that, like, I always have a lot of guilt about, like, how did I miss this? How did I miss all of this going around me? Like, you know, what, like, so many people suffering with invisible diseases, like, I looked, I don't look sick today, like, I look fine. And it was all around me, and I couldn't see it. So I had a lot of guilt. And so I just want to say thank you for taking the time to to see what others honestly can't see until they're infected by it, which in one in 10 Americans, it's pretty logical to think that you're going to be affected, whether it be your colleague, your sister, your brother, if not yourself. So I just wanted to say that that's a very special thing. And, you know, having you as an ally means a lot. Well, and, and, you know, you deserve that sort of support. And the reality is that, um, because these, these diseases, there's so many of them and they're complex in their presentation, uh, it's unrealistic really to expect um, providers to know them all, to know their pattern of presentation, and to recognize those patterns, particularly in our fractured healthcare system. And so many rare diseases are multi-system, so you're seeing multiple providers for multiple issues, and nobody is doing a cross-reference in the record and, and comparing the data points to see what they suggest. And that's fundamentally what we do. We bring that solution to the healthcare marketplace um, because often. So before we get into this, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean. I, there was one thing I wanted to ask before we really get into like our DDT and like what it does and and really letting you explain it to me because like I'm not going. I'm skeptical, right? When you when you're talking about change, like changing something that is so difficult. And it's been for me, like I'm, I have 42 diagnoses on my, on my chart. And so we'll get inside in a minute, but will you explain to our listeners, um, what is like the rare disease diagnostic odyssey that you're talking about? Just so we're all on the same page as we dive into this. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. So this is statistical fact. You can look at the Nord 30 year report, which came out, uh, and, you know, consistent analysis that actually, you know, began at the beginning of the marketplace. In the diagnostic odyssey, essentially what that means is that the across these 7,000 rare diseases, across these 30 million patients in the U.S., that on average, so that's the average, between that patients will experience a five to eight year diagnostic odyssey. In that five to eight years, they'll see as many as 10 providers, half of which are specialists. They'll be misdiagnosed three times. They'll be mistreated twice. Uh, they'll be wrongfully uh, flagged as psychosomatic or as drug seekers uh, within the patient record, and they are essentially lost in healthcare. And that's an average. That's five to eight year average. So there's people on either end of that spectrum, um, and and it's, it's variable based on the disease and its and its presentation patterns. But that fundamental problem, you know, rare diseases. You know, the nature of it is you can't find what you're not looking for. And if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. And that's the problem we see. <laughs> I've never used that before, but I felt like if I was ever going to use that, it, it seemed <laughs> extremely relevant sure, right there. Sure. Um, so, okay, David, like I said, I'm pretty skeptical. I'm not going to lie. I am part of some uh, diagnosis 2016. Um, I am so incredibly blessed. My mother-in-law is a doctor. And so I feel like I've been able to get some advancements because like sh- just by way of her. But, you know, we are, I'm going into year five. I have no diagnosis. Like I, it, to me, I, I cling on to the word rare because I don't feel like I have a diagnosis. When you have 42 things on a sheet and every doctor passing you to the next, 
it's hard to feel like, oh, like I have this disease under control, uh, you know, which leads to then what support groups do you go? Like, it, it's just a snowball. So I'm pretty, I am pretty skeptical about, you know, saying like, okay, we've got, I think we've got the solution here and this is how we have to change. You know, I, I've sp- spoken on a lot of panels and one of the things I don't understand, right, is, and I'm not a doctor, but, you know, how do we have 7,000 diseases if like you're telling me that, you know, Ehlers-Daniels, endometriosis, um, POTS, like they all go like, so why aren't we clumping or whatever? So can you walk me through what, like what the solution is, what you guys have kind of come up with? And, you know, I think your mission is incredibly strong. Now give me the meat behind it. Sure. Well, there's a couple things in the marketplace that are important to realize when it comes to rare disease. You know, we have the greatest healthcare system in the world. You look at our rate of um, uh, evolution and progress and innovation, it's unmatched. Uh, You just where healthcare has come in the last 30 years is extraordinary. Um, But there's an underbelly to for-profit healthcare. And, you know, let's let's remember that about 70% of the patient population is in the community. And that's largely for-profit healthcare. And even not-for-profit healthcare has to operate profitably if they want to stay in healthcare. So really, everyone's in the for-profit healthcare system. The healthcare system, as it is, it's a fee-for-service, uh, volume-based, built-for-the-masses healthcare system. And in, in that realm, volume equals value. And their emphasis, they've got, you know, healthcare is very busy, very overwhelmed. COVID didn't help. They've got a million things to do and time to do half of them. And they're going to prioritize their initiatives on two things, volume and value. And while rare disease patients are precious and in aggregate, they're, you know, one in 10 people or 30 million, they're many. Um, individually by disease state, they're few. And in the economics of healthcare, they're largely a low ROI patient population. So rare, complex, low ROI, low priority on the healthcare side. And, and, and really healthcare will never take the, uh, lengthy, expensive initiative of doing things like creating artificial intelligence search models to look for patients proactively to diagnose them early and accurately so they can treat it, be treated appropriately just because of the nature of the marketplace and the mechanics. The other phenomenon, of course, is, is with payers and payers are banks and they want more coming in and less going out. And while they certainly have some data that could be helpful in patient discovery, there's really no incentive for them to proactively search for these patients. Yes, you know, while these uh, therapies can be very expensive um, and the cost of, of undiagnosed lost patients are a drain on the system, finding those patients proactively, economically, is never a win for payers because treating those patients appropriately is always going to be more expensive. So you've got two entities there, and then you've got the manufacturers who are doing research and discovery in these disease states, which is phenomenal. You think 30 years ago, there wasn't a single rare disease therapy, and today there's over 350. So I just want, sorry, I'm, I'm trying not to interrupt because no, like, I'm so interested, but I want to also make sure I get some questions in terms of like, to clarify, because if I feel like I'm a patient and I am not exactly know if I'm sure if when you say marketplace. Um, can you explain what you mean by like rare disease marketplace just so that 
our listeners and I are on the same page? Yeah. So, you know, in, in 1983, when the Orphan Disease Act was, was passed and it created these incentives, tax breaks, accelerated review, extended patent to entice research and development to try to serve these small, you know, genetically ill patient populations. And, you know, in 1983, pharma, the nirvana for pharma was to cure the common cold because everybody gets it and everybody gets it multiple times. They were thinking about volume being and value being synonymous as well. But Congress created these incentives and it was a beautiful thing because it actually did entice research and development, um, which on average, I would remind you, is about a billion dollar investment, takes about a decade, and there's an 80% failure rate. So you're enticing commerce into pursue discovery of therapies for these rare diseases. And there's, you know, those are the numbers, billion dollars, 10 years, 80% failure rate. So it's a huge roll of the dice for them. But if they get to market and FDA approval, you know, you've got an, essentially almost an exclusive marketplace. And um, the fundamental problem for them, though, is that 75% of their targeted patient population is lost in healthcare. So you've got this miracle breakthrough FDA approved, you know, therapy and you can't find the patients who desperately want it and need it. And the providers who are caring for those patients, you know, there could be, uh, you know, a single therapy for this ultra rare genetic disease that's slowly killing the patient and nobody, you know, and that goes on for years. And because wow. the patient's not properly diagnosed, nobody's connecting the dots. So you might be in an instance where with your disease where there's maybe there's no research and discovery going on. Maybe the disease hasn't been identified. Maybe it has. If it has been, you know, the first question that any investor ever asks is, well, how many patients are there? Is there a marketplace? Can this can this therapy com- be commercially viable in a marketplace? Can I build a company on the discovery of a therapy for this rare disease? And that's where all this you know, that's where, that's where the, the finances come to fund research and discovery. It starts sometimes at the NIH, but ultimately that's that's where the decision gets made is, is this commercially viable? Can I continue to invest hundreds of millions of dollars with an 80% failure rate at the chance of a breakthrough? Uh, and that's the question the market's constantly asking itself. So when you say rare disease marketplace, it's manufacturers who are engaged okay. in life sciences, research and discovery of Therapies for rare disease patients. Uh, it's providers caring for those patients, sometimes knowingly, unknowingly. Um, and then, um, you know, it's obviously the payers who are paying for the care of those patients. And where do you, like, so I have a lot of guests on the show who independently have raised millions of dollars to save their children. Where do they fit into this equation? And maybe we'll get to that later, but. I mean, I think one that's like a, a very tall task for any parent, you know. It is, and 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 I've I've met some of those parents, and I have such great admiration for them. And honestly, research and discovery has to be funded, right? And so that's the value of creating a critical, uh, you know, um, investment, you know, sort of core. But you know, a million dollars is a drop in the bucket. Ultimately, you're going to have to attract commercial investment into the endeavor or commercial partnerships of some kind to get the ball over the goal line. And, and, and what fundamentally will drive that process is, you know, is capitalism. Is there a commercial marketplace? Now the beauty of the rare disease marketplace is that small in number does not equal small in value because of the cost of these therapies, which 
These are the most expensive therapies in healthcare. So by virtue of that, these are the most valuable patients in healthcare. The problem is they're of no value to healthcare. And that was fundamentally what I saw as a, as a solution. If I can compliantly align incentives so that I can leverage the value of these patients for the benefit of these patients in healthcare and create a systematic system to search and rescue and drive these patients to a fast and accurate diagnosis, that's good for the patient. It's helpful to the providers. It's proper utilization of their, uh, their commercialized uh, healthcare data that they've been collecting on these patients for, you know, sometimes years and years and years that are indicators, that are markers, that are highly suggestive of the rare disease that that patient, you know, may or, or may you know, likely have. And if we can accelerate that process, we can accelerate the entire uh, process. And, and fundamentally, back to your question, what, you know, the capitalism and the investment of those dollars in research and development it goes back to the first question, which is how many patients are there? Because that will determine the commercial viability of the market, which determines the investment. And if you can't answer that question or, or if the question is we don't know or it's too small, you can't attract the investment. And so fundamentally solving that problem, identifying those patients creates a cohort that can be studied, that can be enrolled in clinical trials, that can be evaluated and that research against discovery can you know, take place on. So, I mean, gosh, I have a million and a half questions, but I want to, I want, I think some of them may be answered by just asking you this one simple one is tell me how our DDT is going to fix this problem. Like, you know, tell, walk me through, um, what it is that you guys are doing. And I guess, you know, as, as a rare disease community, right. You need us, right. You need us to step oh. in just as much as you, you need both people, both parts of this wheel, it seems like. So can you kind of walk me through the solution that you found? Yeah. So what um, what's going on right now in in healthcare is uh, is called essentially data commercialization or data monetization. So healthcare, and we focus exclusively on community uh, healthcare, which is about seventy percent of the patient population, and these are community based provider practices, hospitals, primary care, all the way up to the acute care center. And what has happened in the last 30 years is a consolidation and a vertical integration of these health systems. So, you know, providers all sold their practices and everybody works for the health system and all their data is vertically integrated. And they've been collecting, you know, every time you come in, you know, there, there's all your structured data, which is all your labs. Then there's the provider notes. You know, rare disease patients tell stories and, and hopefully to a uh, a degree of accuracy, physicians are capturing those stories like this happened to me and 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 then I felt this and all of that is relative to the patient journey. And so, you know, this data set exists. It was created for uh, ultimately to serve patients uh, in aggregating data, yet it's set there for the last 20 years and nobody's ever done anything. So healthcare really, they realize that they have this phenomenal asset but it's a little bit controversial because it's your data, it's my data, it's everyone else's data, but they own it, okay? And, and so they're trying to figure out how to um, monetize that in a responsible way. And we bring them, we think, a very responsible way. We think data, if it's going to be commercialized, it should be commercialized first and foremost to serve the most vulnerable, underserved patient population in healthcare, and those are rare disease patients. And so what we are for them is a process in which to commercialize that data. So we ingest, we go to a health system, we say partner with us, 
We're going to do loss, loss rear disease data analytics. We ingest their data. We catalog it. And then we find um, sponsors who want to uh, target a specific rare disease uh, and drive the diagnosis and discovery of those patients in that data. Can you tell me what you mean when you say like you, so let's say the insert hospital that has like said, we want to do this, right? Or doctor's office insert that you go there and you said we digest data. So let's say you're at my doctor's office. What, what are you digest? When you say digest, are you taking my labs? Or We're ing- I'm sorry, ingesting their data. So all of their data out of their electronic health record is essentially stored in the cloud. And we ingest that, that ambulatory data, that acute data. We catalog it, all their patient lives de-identified. So we don't know any PHI. We don't know who these patients are. But we essentially have all their records. And we format that in a way that we can search, um, you know, mass volumes of records with these artificial intelligent models and discover these markers within those records and the patterns of markers within those records that are highly suggestive of a particular diagnosis. So this may be like very layman's terms now, bear, bear with me. So like, for instance, one of the things I never thought to tell my doctor when I was like, all this was going on was that I was getting ulcers in my mouth. And then when he found out, like that was like the, the one of the pivotal moments in which they pushed me to rheumatology. My question being, like, could would there be some sort of keyword or something like ulcers in their in your mouth or down your throat or whatever have you? And this this intelligence, you know, pulls that out. It's like, hey, that's a flag. Yeah, absolutely. So that you know, that's a type of a phenotype that if you look at these genetic diseases, they present gradually and they present in predictable patterns. And so a, mar- a phenotypical marker like ulcers in your mouth that you just may, on happen chance, mention to your physician that he could make a simple note in, you know, in his provider notes with an electronic health record, not really know if it's suggestive of anything. He's, he's just doing good documentation. And that, you know, happening over time, you're essentially leaving breadcrumbs to the disease. The problem is nobody on the healthcare side is evaluating that data. Well, because I'm, I'm thinking about like my process and, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I know for me, I know there's a lot of like childhood rare diseases, but I got sick when I was 26. And so for me, it was, um, I went in and I, I told my presenting problem, the thing that was bothering me the most, not my joint pain, not, yes, my hair was falling out. There's so many things, right? But I wasn't being asked the question. So I just kept being like, I am a level of fatigue that like, I cannot express to you. Right. Um, and so I kept saying that thing until, you know, ultimately I, I felt like I wasn't being listened to. So I threw in like, well, there's also this going on. I don't know if it's relevant. And those are the breadcrumbs you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Like that slow. And, and I would encourage your know, rare disease patients to be very thorough and, and, and inform your physician of all the strange occurrences that are going on because those are, those are clues. And, and, and granted, you know, you're sadly providers, you know, are so busy, they're not going to take your record and go spend three hours, you know, in the evening trying to do an analysis and researching all your symptoms and trying to find a rare disease that they just, they don't have time for that. I know that's like Grey's Anatomy totally lied to me when they gave me a lot of expectations that are not real. But anyway, or house, um, yeah, like house. Nobody's sitting around in a you know with a grease chalkboard and a room full of doctors discussing your case and trying to solve it. And you know that happens at tumor boards and stuff. But you know, in, in community healthcare, let me just tell you that's a whole other episode on like what those two shows have done to me. Honestly, David, yeah. like because I've been trying to build the strength to like actually talk about 
the, those two episodes and how they like <laughs> actually killed my soul. Um, yeah. I just want to, one of the, I think common things um, that comes up is like, obviously like, is this stuff you're collecting protected? Um, you know, even though like, there's always slip ups in documentation. I'm a clinical therapist. You know, sometimes I put a name where it shouldn't or whatever have you, is your system still like HIPAA compliant and protected if yeah. for some reason some identifying information came away. Yeah. So, um, you know, what we do is create, and the reason we can do what we do, you know, so healthcare and for, and manufacturers are forbidden from working together. There's HIPAA, there's Stark, and there's anti-kickback statutes. Manufacturers can give no incentive for healthcare to do anything, even if it's the right thing. Okay. So there's never, ever can, you know, any sort of financial incentive crossover uh, from manufacturers to providers. And we really discovered this sort of compliant, um, you know, safe harbor where we can function as a middleman and manufacturers can sponsor targeted searches of providers data. But we don't, we deal exclusively in de-identified data. We create a master patient index so that when we find what we call suspect patients and we communicate that back to our provider partners, we, we don't know who the patient is, but the master patient index re-identifies the patient back to the provider. So we're essentially doing all the analytics and analysis of the raw data and then, and then, you know, pointing out highly suspicious patients and then shepherding that physician through, you know, working that patient up to a diagnostic conclusion, but we never know who the patient is. So it's pretty rock solid. So like I could be patient like one, seven, two, three, five, six, four on Absolutely. your sheet. Right. Okay. And, but your, you know, the provider notes and all your structured data, I mean, those markers are, they're de-identified. We don't need, you know, your street address and your birthday and all those things, you know, probably not very relevant. Well, and we want to protect um, your, we want to protect your anonymity too, right? The point is to, to rescue lost rare disease patients while protecting their anonymity. And the only person who's ever going to know who they are is the provider who we're surfacing that patient up to. So I have two really big questions. My first one I'm going to ask, cause I think it's in the right order, but correct me if not, you find these markers, you say, Wow, in your is it just your organization or is it in like many organizations that you would like when you're collecting that? I'm assuming you want more numbers, right? So we the hope would be that out of more like not just one organization, like not just New York Presbyterian. Right, but- no, we so we we want as many data partners as we can. And for them, it's again, it's the raw data sets that um we are uh, conducting sponsored searches for targeted disease states with these AI models against that data set. So we've got a pipeline of sponsors who want to search for their patients. And here's one of the beautiful truths of the rare disease marketplace from the manufacturing side is that, you know, there's a rule that, you know, everything's always in the, you know, in the best interest of the patient. But one of the beautiful truths is that you can invest in what's good for the patient and it's always good for business. Lost patients are bad for business. So you can make a good faith investment in accelerating the diagnosis of patients with no promised utilization, no promised outcome, simply because the consistent discovery and accurate diagnosis of these patients is good for the patient, first and foremost. And ultimately, if you've got a therapy to treat those patients, inevitably, it'll be it's good for business. And so, you know, the safe harbor allows this investment uh, in a way that serves patients. Uh, from manufacturers. And if they do it compliantly through an intermediary like us, which we discovered was possible, um, you know, it's it's a game changer. And we've got to do it on scale. We want to do it, 
you know, we want to do it with every community-based provider and then ultimately even integrate academic centers. Because guess what? Their problem is they've got open clinical trials and no patients to enroll in them. Which is so funny because I can't get into a clinical trial. Yeah. But, right, but, that comes down, but that comes down to the diagnostic though, right? Like yes. They're not just going to throw someone into a clinical trial without it. And that comes down to what you're doing, right? This diagnostic. Yeah. Well, you, you got to identify the patient first. Yes. And also like the disease, right? Like I'm not going to, if they're doing this, I mean, I'm willing to go into anything. So I just want the answer. Right. But like, I could understand why, you know, the NIH is like, go away until you have a diagnosis. Well, but see what, here's the thing with rare disease and healthcare in general, repetition is the mother of expertise. Okay. So think about that. You know, you're going to get a procedure. You want a doctor who's done it a thousand times, you know, or does a hundred a week or whatever. Repetition is the mother of expertise. Rare disease, there's there's no repetition. So most people don't develop any expertise. That's diagnostically, it's treatment, it's everything. And so, you know, you solve that problem of increasing patient discovery. And then essentially, you know, these patients ultimately get consolidated with a specialist who knows what they're doing uh, or in a clinical trial. Um, but again, solving, you know, identifying the disease and creating a cohort that can be studied is, is the genesis of progress. So I know I'm going to lame in this down, so I apologize, but you get all the, like you flagged 700 patients, let's say, right? Got flagged. You then basically tell these, what's the next step? Like then providers get notified that they have, that there's a cohort of this disease and these are your patients that fit this cohort? Yes. And so, you know, 700 is not a, li- a more likely number. And one of the reasons this works, because on scale, rare disease is small. You know, healthcare is full of lists of, there's lists of, of patients sitting on stack of lists of patients that they one day want to do something with, but they never get to it. Um, you know, we're, we're providing a short list of patients. We are highly suspicious because of all the markers in electronic health record that they have this targeted rare disease. We actually pay, we're paying a longitudinal data license to establish that. And then we pay a data enhancement fee that in, actually incentivizes the provider to consistently and proficiently work those patients up to any diagnostic conclusion. So, you know, they're just, they're generating revenue just for looking for the rare disease, whether they find any or not. And that's fundamentally what we wanted to create was a, a, a revenue stream that incentivized proactively looking for patients and interrupting that diagnostic odyssey, because if you're going to wait for serendipity to happen and the light bulb to go off, you know, you're going to wait an average of five to eight years while you progress irreversibly, painfully, and sometimes even beyond, you know, a limited therapeutic window. I mean, this is pretty amazing. Like this is, it makes sense, right? Like every, and I I wouldn't say, I say very much so on the day-to-day like support side of kind of surviving my disease. Um, and this makes sense to me. This is exciting. My next question is, okay, well, I'm a rare disease patient. How can I, it's, it seems like you need me, right? Like you, you need my investment or you, like how can this community also show up for you to enhance, I guess, then the overall, right? Like I believe yeah. that it's, it's a partnership. So, well, you know, and, and this is all, this is all about patients, right? And we need, um, you know, the advocacy of patients that, you know, are championing, you know, rare disease causes in general, you know, we have made phenomenal progress. There's three curative single dose FDA approved gene therapies for rare disease on the market today. There's 3000 in development. So, you know, who knows what's to come, but we're at the precipice of, 
really making extraordinary strides uh, in the rare disease space. Um, And really the next natural evolution is to put all this data to work to accelerate disease understanding, patient discovery, um, and, 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 and really creating a longitudinal data set where in your instance, where we're not sure what you have, we can create a model around your disease and look for all the other patients that look just like that. And then, and then essentially study those patients to see maybe one gets diagnosed. And what that would be meaningful is all the other patients that look just like that, which creates, you know, a cohort of patients, which attracts investment, research and development treatments, you know, and then even what else is out there already on the market, we find all the time that can treat, uh, you know, the existing therapies that can treat existing rare diseases. But you can't learn that if you're not studying the data of the patients longitudinally. And that accelerates the whole marketplace. So really, we're doing two things. One is driving the consistent uh, search and discovery and diagnosis of lost rare disease patients, but creating from that a longitudinal data set, observational data set, where we can learn, you know, by observing these patients and ask analytical questions against that, which will inform research and development and accelerate that marketplace. And data is the answer. You know, we, we didn't invent the data. We didn't invent artificial intelligence or machine learning. Um, and we didn't invent the marketplace, but we figured out how to put all these things in a compliant order that allows for the resources to flow to accelerate this process. And, and that is going to be revolutionary to the marketplace because lost patients hinder everything and they don't want to be lost. No, we don't. I am so done being lost. I would like to be very much so found. Yeah. Okay, so this sounds beautiful, right? But like everything, I mean, as a small business owner, as I mean, your company is now growing rapidly, which is amazing, but you're, there's challenges. So what what are the challenges you're facing right now in, in, in scaling this, right? Because in theory, right, anyone who listens to you should want to implement this just based on yeah. like good practice. And they should, it just, it makes sense. And it's sort of inevitable and it's the future and it's going to happen. But you know, change comes slow. The world's full of fast followers <laughs> and few really original <laughs> thinkers. And, and, you know, there's a bias, there's a bias in healthcare based on volume and they thinking volume exclusively equals value. Um, there's a bias in healthcare. There's a general apathy and inertia around rare disease. It's not a, it's not a point of emphasis in healthcare. Um, on on the provider side, and it's not a focus. And so we're bringing a solution that they're kind of not looking for. Most of, you know, I talk to healthcare executives all the time. They don't even know what rare disease is. They don't even know that one in 10 people or 30 million patients have a rare genetic disease. They don't even know that basic statistical fact. They've been in healthcare their entire careers. So there's a whole education there. And then data commercialization, you know, it's a little bit controversial and, and they're figuring out, trying to figure out how to do it well. And, and we're trying to convince them that our solution is where you should start serving the most vulnerable, underserved patients in healthcare. Let's end this diagnostic odyssey problem. And we deliver a very significant revenue stream, you know, which we think elevates patients to where they should be, which is at the top of the list. Um, and so our biggest challenges really are right now that education process with on the on the community healthcare provider side. It's an executive level, C level decision, and educating them on all these components and why this makes so much sense and why it's so meaningful to patients and why it's worth their time and worth 
you know, introducing this for the benefit of their patient population. I love that. I'm also going to ask you uh, my famous, like, you know, what is your advice to any, you know, rare disease patient? Like, how can we best cultivate what you're trying to do? You know, for us right now, I think if you have any relationship with a manufacturer, they have um, been doing business the same way for 30 years. And, you know, they, they hire an army full of people to go out into the field and educate as many people as they can to hopefully, you know, at the right time, they educated the right physician, which leads to patient discovery and, and appropriate care of that patient. That that's an old model that's kind of broken, and because half of the providers won't even see commercial representatives, COVID completely, you know, even uh, stifled that more. So rare disease education is at an all-time low right now, just because of access. And you know, they've invested in an infrastructure, headcount, fleets of cars, and people to accomplish this. And so, you know, I come along and say. You know, we can do it on scale across millions of patients and, um, you know, in 60 days, find every probable patient in the entire health system, drive them to a diagnostic outcome. And when the diagnosis is positive, we give you a lead to that provider in real time um, with a newly diagnosed patient. So they never have access to the data. They never have, you know, they don't know any PHI. We don't know any PHI. But when the provider's got a newly diagnosed patient, he's got a need for incremental education we want to connect the stakeholders and that's what we do. So, you know, it's a shift uh, for them on thinking about how to do business. So I would say influence, influence them to be innovative and aggressive and patient centric. A lot of them say patient centric. It's a buzzword. Tell me how you're doing that. Cause you know what patient centric? I like that. You know what patient centric means is that you're taking risk on my behalf. Mm. You're taking risk on my behalf. How are you taking risk on my behalf? And that is what patient centricity is. Um, I wrote that and- down. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to have to give you one of these. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I wrote that down. That was, I, I think that's a question I want to keep when I hear, you know, patient, like, you know, you're a patient. I'd like that. Well, how are you put, how, what does that mean? How aggressive are you being? Yeah. Well, and I, you know, when I, I worked for a company called Shire Human Genetics and we had a, a essentially a slogan that said, be as brave as the patients you're serving. Mm. Um, and you have to be brave. You have to be out of the box thinking. You have to push the envelope. You have to challenge the status quo. If you're serving rare disease patients, I mean, because whatever you're doing isn't working. So start thinking about what you can do different. And they've had limited options and now we're a new option. So, you know, it's pushing them to think differently and then, you know, um, any healthcare organization that, um, you know, in the community that has data and has, you know, doesn't have a solution uh, built around rare disease, which they're not going to have, you know, we can generate a very significant revenue stream and systematically look and, and forward rescue lost rare disease patients, one disease data at a time, and elevate these patients to their rightful place, which is a top priority in healthcare on the provider side. I mean, I'm so excited. I am a big supporter. I know anything I can do. Um, you know, David, if people wanted to connect with you, where can they find you? Where where are you guys? Um, they want to read more information or if, you know, they really wanted to dive into, um, you know, this model. Yeah. So um, I'm on LinkedIn, David Connor, CEO, co-founder of Rare Disease Data Trust. We've got a, a LinkedIn webpage. And then we've got a, a, a company webpage, which is finding-rare.com. Um, and that we've got whiteboard videos on there and explains our model and what we do. Um, and those, and you can do a contact form on there, but feel free to reach out to me. We, 
Uh, we work with patient foundations who want to sponsor searches, manufacturers, anybody who has a um, wants to invest in the process of rescuing lost rare disease patients. As always, friends, I went ahead and put those down in the show notes for you so they're clickable. I will say, David, I'm pretty sure we were meant to find each other considering, I don't know if you know our handle here, but find your rare, finding rare. I'm just saying ah, there was definitely something, there was something, something, um, you know, the universe wanted us to, to connect. Thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon and for being here. And like I said, just for being an ally. Um, I'm so excited to hopefully see this huge, shift slowly of course because everything is you know over time but surely um so thank you well it's a righteous cause i would encourage all those rare disease advocates and patients that are out there it's a beautiful fight keep fighting don't get tired don't get weary the system's sort of leveraged against you but you know squeaky wheel gets the grease um so keep squeaking As always, thank you to all our listeners who tune in every week as we continue to bridge the gap between rare disease and the rest of the world. Until next time, live large and stay rare. Catch us next week for another episode. To continue the conversation about rare disease and all the unknowns that comes with it, join our Facebook group. Want even more rare? Become a VRP member on Patreon and learn more about our stories or how to share yours by visiting bwspod.com.